Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is true. Because it is true, Father, we declare with confidence that you are on our side, that you are with us, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells us and is here in this place. We thank you that he opens our eyes, our spiritual eyes, Father, to see who we are in Christ and what we have in you. We thank you, Father, for changing us by the Spirit of God and by the Word today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's start this morning in John chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 7. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, just a matter of a few hours before he will be taken captive in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said this, John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now, we don't use these and thous and ye and all that kind of stuff anymore. But I want you to notice in that verse, the word you is in that verse five times. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. Folks, it's an unknown fact, unknown to a great degree in, in much of the church world, but you getting answers to your prayers depends more on you than it does God. And Jesus is telling, telling us exactly that. If you abide in me, now notice the qualifications. Abiding in him comes through the new birth, of course. We make Jesus the Lord of our lives. Then we are in Christ, as the scripture says. So that, uh, that covers the first part, if you abide in me. But that's not the only criteria, not the only qualification. He said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will. Now, <clears throat> from uh, studies and surveys and things like that that I've seen over the years, the vast majority of those that are polled, Christians that are polled, believe in prayer. But when they follow up the question, do you believe in prayer, with had you, have you ever received an answer to prayer that you knew was God doing something specifically because you prayed, the percentage goes down to like 20 or 30%. And that makes me wonder, why do people believe in something that doesn't work for them? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm glad they believe in prayer. They should. But shouldn't that light a fire under us to figure out why it's not working the way the Bible says it should? I believe it should. John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist movement, a man greatly used of God, a man that loved God with all of his heart. If you read some of the stuff of Wesley's life, um, well, with all kindness, it doesn't look like the Methodist church of today. He knew God. He saw the power of God in operation in his life and in his ministry. But he made a statement once toward the end of his, uh, end of his life. He said, it seems that God can do nothing for humanity except man ask him. He went a little bit further and said, why this is, we don't know. Well, I'm sorry that John didn't know, but the Bible tells us the answer of why. 
The answer is very simple, and that is because God gave man authority on the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air and over all the works of our hands. God made the earth, specifically designed it, for man to have authority and exercise authority here on the earth. Well, if God did that in the origin, in the, uh, the origin, the beginning of the church, or the beginning of mankind is what I'm talking about. I'll get my mouth working here in a minute. But if God originally planned for man to have authority on the earth, and God never changes, then God still intends for man to have authority on the earth. Now, we know that the devil has certain authority. We know that he can do certain things here in the earth, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan is the God of this world. There are three words that are used, three different uh, Greek and Hebrew words, or well, three different Greek words in, for the New Testament that are used in t- talking about the world. One means the planet, earth itself. The Old Testament in the Hebrew says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means God owns the planet. It doesn't mean he's running things there. It just means he owns it. It's, it's his possession. But he gave it over into the hands of man Another uh, word that's used concerning world is cosmos, which means the arrangement or the world system that's in place here. I used to think the devil took over the world system, but that's not supported by the Bible. I don't believe the devil's big enough to take over God's system just by Adam falling in the Garden of Eden. But there's the third word. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it's basically the word eon, which means period of time. So when uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan is the God of this world, it means he's the God of this time period. Well, this time period is going to come to an end. In um, Luke chapter 4, Jesus was tempted of the devil, and one of the temptations, one of the three temptations that came against him, the Bible says Satan took him up into a high mountain, And showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms and the glory thereof. For that is delivered unto me. Well, who delivered it? God certainly didn't. God's plan was not for Satan to have authority on the earth. But man forfeited some degree of his authority at the fall when he obeyed what Satan suggested did he do rather than what God told him to do. And so Satan is the God of this world for a period of time. He has authority and influence over this world for a period of time. But think about that too. If Satan is operating in this world with some degree of power, some degree of authority, why doesn't he just wipe the world out? The Bible says, Jesus said that the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. So if destruction is his aim, why didn't he just wipe everybody out? Well, there's only one possible answer to that, and that is he can't. Now, he wants you to think he can, but he certainly can't. And even when it comes to the kingdoms of the world, and we've certainly seen a lot of people in red in his, uh, historical records about a lot of people that were influenced of the devil in a mighty way to do evil from positions of authority or kings or elected officials or whoever, dictators and such. We know that a lot of people were used of the devil in a great way. But if Satan had ultimate authority over the kingdoms of the earth, meaning governments 
and so forth, then it would be impossible for there ever to be a good king. And Israel had some good kings, not nearly enough of them. But Israel had some good kings along with the evil ones. So even where the devil exercises authority here in the earth, particularly in government, now I think it's interesting that that would be the one that uh, the Bible tells us that he tipped Jesus with. If Satan is the force behind governments working against mankind and any other way that the devil exercises authority, how does he do that? How does he gain that authority? How does he gain that influence? Well, he's got to talk people into doing what he wants to do. He can't just make man do something. Man has authority in the earth. Man was given authority over the earth. And unless the devil deceives us, then his influence, his ability to operate is greatly, seriously hindered. And that's why the Bible says that deception is the, the, uh, really the only work of the devil. The way the devil operates against you and me and everybody else is through deception. But Paul told us not to be deceived. We're, he told us not to be ignorant of the devil's devices. Don't be ignorant of the way he operates. Now back to John chapter 15, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Notice verse 8. Herein. Or in this manner. Now what manner is he talking about? You asking what you will and your will taking place in the earth. You receiving what you will from God. Jesus said herein, in that manner, the Father is glorified. And so shall you be my disciples. Two things about this. Jesus said to the disciple, we've been talking about that here lately. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say go into all the world and get people saved. There's a difference. There's a difference between being a believer and a disciple. John chapter 8, we looked at in verse 31, 32. He said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. He said that to believers. But disciples have a different place with God, connection with God, through the word first and foremost. But there, here in John 15, 8, he's saying a sign of a disciple should be his successful prayer life. Herein is my Father glorified. Folks, God wants you to get an answer to your prayer more than you want the answer. Because it glorifies him when you get it. But look at how inept... The church seems to be in the area of prayer. If those surveys that we've mentioned and that, that come out from time to time, if those are accurate, if those are a true reflection of the modern-day church regarding success or effectiveness in prayer, I don't believe that's what Jesus is talking about in John 15. I don't believe that satisfies what he said glorifies God. Do you? Now, part of the problem, and uh, I heard Brother Hagin tell stories about this forever, about how people would come to him and ask him to pray for them. And so many times people didn't want to tell him what they wanted to pray about, what they wanted him to pray for them about. And he wouldn't do that. He'd always ask what for. And they'd say something like, well, do I have to tell you? He said, yeah, I'm not going to pray unless you do. 
Because when somebody wants you or me or anybody else to pray for them, they're looking for us to either have faith for them to receive something or to agree with them concerning their faith in whatever it is they're asking for. Well, if you don't know what they're asking for, you can't have faith for it. If you don't know what somebody else is believing, where their faith is, you can't join your faith together with them. Many times, I know in the church I grew up in, there would be a, a Wednesday night prayer meeting. I don't know why they called it a prayer meeting because we didn't do much praying. But they'd have, uh, they'd have a blackboard. They'd bring a big chalkboard up into the, into the sanctuary and they'd have somebody to write down all the prayer requests that they'd received during the week, list them there on the, uh, on the blackboard. Well, since the name was there, you know, so-and-so wants prayer, most of the time, on the lines on the chalkboard would give the name of the individual, and then out beside it, it would say, unspoken request. Now, the people that turn those unspoken requests in would justify it or try to justify it by saying, well, God knows. Well, if God knows, let him handle it. No use to me and you trying to pray for something that we can't believe God for. And so many times those unspoken requests were because they were either unscriptural or people didn't know what the Bible says concerning their situation. See, folks, when John, when John 15, 7, Jesus spoke in John 15, 7 to say, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, to meet those qualifications the word abiding in you, in nine times out of ten, or maybe more, the Bible already covers your situation. It already covers what somebody wants to request. And as a result, many times, maybe the majority of times, the things that people are asking God for are things that he's already done and already provided. Well, if you're asking God for something he's already given, something he's already done through the work of Jesus, the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. You're wasting your time praying. There's nothing to pray about. Now, I know how that comes across. I know that a lot of times if you take a position where the word is true and we're going to act on the word no matter what, and you tell people, as I have for years, that there's nothing to pray about, if the Bible says something's already been done. People call you all kinds of names. They'll say you're cold, uncaring, no love, and so forth. And as a result, they'll go their merry little way, still looking for somebody else to pray for them when the Word already covers their situation. What I'm saying is this, folks. If you've got the Word of God on something, there's nothing to pray about. And if you don't have the Word of God on something, then you need to find it to make sure what you're asking for or what you want is non-scriptural. Look with me to Matthew chapter 6. I want you to see something else Jesus said about prayer. Jesus is talking about, well, we'll just start in verse 8. 
He said, be not ye therefore like unto them, talking about the uh, Pharisees and such. He said, be not therefore like unto them, for your father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. Now, the main point I want you to see here is that God knows what you need, but he still expects you to ask. Your father in heaven knows what you have need of before you ask him. Jesus did not say your father knows what you have need of, so there's no reason to ask him. He said he knows what your needs are, but he still wants you to ask. Look with me to Matthew chapter 9. Let me show you an example of this. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Another translation more more accurately says every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. See, not every person on the earth was healed when Jesus was here, but Jesus healed every manner of sickness and disease throughout his ministry. Remember in Mark chapter 6, it says Jesus could in his own hometown of Nazareth do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. That means he didn't have any cripples healed in Nazareth, any blind eyes opened or such. Well, he was anointed to do that. He said so. He took from the prophet Isaiah's scroll and read where he was anointed to heal the sick. But he wasn't able to heal the sick in his hometown of Nazareth because of the unbelief of the people. But he healed every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. Notice verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, he told them to pray for something. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now here's the question. If the harvest is the Lord's, And he said it was. And God wants laborers to go reap the harvest, which he indicated that he did. Why doesn't God just do it? Why did he tell them to pray? We know he can't be telling them to pray out of the will of God because that would make Jesus a liar and it would taint him with sin. So it's the will of God for there to be laborers in the harvest It's God's harvest to begin with, so why doesn't he just do it? Why did Jesus tell the disciples to pray for it? Because man has authority here on the earth, not God. See, if God gave man authority on the earth in the beginning but took it back, he'd be an evildoer. He hasn't taken it back. Look with me to another scripture over in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, beginning in verse, well, let's just read verse 16. He talked about the prayer of faith, praying for the sick. But notice verse 16. He said, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Two things I want you to see on this. If he tells them to pray, believers, Christians, to pray for one another that they be healed, 
then that's got to be in the will of God or else Jesus would, or, or the Holy Ghost who inspired James to write these things would be dealing in lies. So it's got to be the will of God for believers to be healed. Well, if God wants them healed, why didn't he just heal them? Why did he say pray for one another that you may be healed? We'll have to go back to Wesley's statement. It seems that God can do nothing for humanity unless mankind asks him. Because we're the ones that have been given authority. We're the ones that have been given authority on the earth. Now, you may not look like you've got authority. If you look at the situations going on in your life, and you certainly may not feel like you've got authority. But the Bible says you have it. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 15. Paul said, Wherefore I also, after I heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and love of all the saints, cease not to give mention or give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, that word understanding means spirit, the eyes of your spirit, being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who do believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now I want you to notice something. He's really not asking God to give you anything. He's asking God to open your eyes to something or several things. But he's really not asking God to give you anything that you don't already have. He's just praying that our eyes would be opened so that we'd see who we are in Christ. So that we'd know the hope of his calling. What God's plan is for us. So that we'd know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints that's already been given to us. And that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. He's not saying God will give you more power. He's just praying that the church, church's eyes would be opened, the Ephesians' eyes would be opened, the eyes of their spirit would be opened, or that they'd receive revelation according to what they already have. See, folks, too many people are trying to substitute prayer for the Word, and you can't do that. At least it doesn't work. I guess you can do it, and a lot of Christians do, but it never works. So he's wanting us to know these things that God has already provided for us. Verse 20, talking about the power, his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above, not just a little bit above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now notice verse 22, and has put all things, already done, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is a real awkward translation as far as the language is concerned. It's accurate, completely accurate. But the Bible is telling us very simply that Christ is the head and we're the body. Well, we understand that. At least we remember reading that in a couple of places. Christ is the head and we are the body, but look at where Christ was raised to. Far above. 
all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named and has put all things under his feet. Now, are the feet in the head or in the body? And that means under you then. And has put all things under his feet. Now, let's keep reading. Paul didn't write this in chapter and verse any more than you and I would write a letter in chapter and verse. And he's not finished with this thought. Notice Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you hath he quickened. And you have he, has he made alive. Just like he made Jesus alive. Just like the power of God raised Jesus from the dead. He quickened you. He made you alive at the same time. Folks, if our eyes were really opened to the reality that the life that is within us, the power that is within us, the wisdom that's available to us is exactly the same as what Jesus has himself, then we'd turn the world upside down. Verse 1 again, he said, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Then the next few verses, he talks about what that experience was like. Skip down with me to verse 5. He says, Even when we were dead in sins, has he quickened us together with Christ? By grace are you saved, and has raised up us, us up together, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you realize Jesus is no closer to God than you are? Do you realize Jesus has no higher position than you have? Now, he's the preeminent one. He's the head. We're the body. But the head and the body have been quickened together. The head and the body have been seated together at the right hand of God. And notice where it is. It's far above. It's far above. It's far above. All principality and powers and might and dominion and every name that's named. Not only in this world, but in that which is to come. Now, folks, every bit of the devil's power can be found in what we've been Elevated far above. Sickness and disease has a name. And the name of Jesus is far above it. Any work that the devil is doing or attempting to do in your life has a name. And we've been elevated far above it. Anything and everything the devil has ever done, the most heinous crimes, the most evil work that he's ever done in the world, or will ever do in the world. We've been raised far above it. You have authority over the devil. You have authority over the devil's work in your life. You have authority. But so often, we get pulled back into the emotional aspect of prayer. We get our eyes on the circumstances around us. And the attack that's coming against us. And we start praying for things that we already have. For example, if somebody was to pray, Lord, prosper me. 
Well, there's nothing to pray about there. Joshua 1.8 says, The book of this law, meaning the word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. So if God's already told you how to prosper, there's no point in praying about it. Now, I understand that's stuff that makes people think you're hard. Uncaring, unloving, and whatever. But that's exactly what the Bible says. There's no point in praying that God will do something to bring healing to your body or manifest healing in your body. The Bible says Jesus took your infirmities and bared your sicknesses, and with his stripes you're healed. Now, if you look past the symptoms and see the truth, there's nothing to pray about. There's something to receive, but nothing to ask God for. I think the most effective way to pray is to demand your rights. Some people have a hard time with that because they think they're demanding something of God that he doesn't want them to have, trying to force God into doing something that God really doesn't want to do. Well, that kind of thinking only holds up if your idea is that everything God wants to do, he does sovereignly or on his own power. But just as Jesus told the disciples to pray for the laborers to go into the harvest, we know God wants everybody saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 says God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if God's going to do things just on his own, why didn't he just cause everybody to get saved? The fact is, he can't do that. He subjected his power unto his word. In other words, the word of God is greater than anything else. It's greater than God's ability because the word of God tells us, Scripture tells us what God will do and what God has done. If he was going to take over anybody's will or usurp somebody's will, it seems to me that the first place to start would just be make everybody get saved. We know that's what he wants. We know that's his will, and we know that he's provided Jesus for just that purpose. But it's left unto man's decision. And just as it's man's decision whether or not they'll accept what Jesus has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, to come into the family of God, it's left up to us to decide what if anything, that Jesus purchased for us will become a reality in our lives. It's your choice. It's not his. It's your choice. Colossians 1.13 says that Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness. That word power is really the word authority. He's delivered us from the authority of darkness and translated us, in, translated us into the kingdom, kingdom of his dear son. That's already done. That literally means, just as Paul said in other places when he wrote to the, the Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 12, I believe it is. He said, sin has no more dominion over you. Talking to believers. Sin has no more dominion over you. Now, folks, there's a big difference in stumbling and falling and committing sin and it having dominion over you. See, sin dominates the life of the unsaved, the unbeliever. 
But not us, not you, not me, not us. Sin has no longer dominion over us. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Now, no matter what your living experience is, no matter whether you are walking close with God or far away from God, as a believer, that simply means you are free from the law of sin and death. But wouldn't it be nice if just reading it made it true? Wouldn't it be nice if just reading it made it a reality in your life? It is true. It just may not be true for us as far as experience is concerned. But wouldn't it be nice if Jesus said, if you abide in me, then you'll ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. If that was all there was to it, just abiding in him. But you know as well as I do that many Christians, maybe most Christians, are living defeated lives. They're living under the authority of the kingdom of darkness. Not because they want to, but because they haven't found the truth of how to get out of it. They haven't found the reality that Jesus has already set us free. Now I want to show you four examples that prove our authority over the devil. I want you to turn with me first to, Matthew, to uh, Mark chapter 16. I'm going to combine a couple of scriptures here because there are four witnesses, four New Testament witnesses of our authority over Satan and his work. You remember in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, the Great Commission, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared unto his disciples, and he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That word power is the word authority. Literally, he's saying all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. I've got it all. Now, he did not have it all when he was here on the earth. He did not have that authority. The Bible says in Colossians 2.15 that Christ spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them. In other words, he took what power and authority the devil had when he conquered death. Death in the grave. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, he's saying the authority that I had on the earth is the same, but now I've got more than that. And the first thing he did was commission the church to go in the world. In other words, the first thing he did was exactly what he did in his earthly ministry when he conferred upon the disciples power and authority over sickness and disease and to cast out evil spirits. He conferred that to the disciples, conferred the authority that he had on the earth at the time of his earthly ministry to the disciples, and they went everywhere healing the sick. Everywhere they found somebody that would receive them, everywhere that they found somebody that would accept by faith what they were teaching about God's plan for man, they had miraculous results. So now Jesus is raised from the dead and does exactly the same thing. This is not a foreign, uh, foreign experience to these guys. He says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now you go use it in the earth. Why did he tell the church to go use his authority in the earth? Because he didn't stay here. He went to heaven. And since God is not a, a liar, he's not an Indian giver, man still has the position of authority on the earth. Only now it's greater than it was after the fall because we've been translated into the kingdom of God's son, Jesus. So Jesus conferred 
authority on the earth because he wasn't going to be here. Jesus' death required that he leave the planet, which is what happens at, at the point of physical death for all of us. You can't stay here if you don't have a body. So Jesus gave his authority, his newfound authority that he gained by conquering the enemy. He gave that authority to the church and said, go into all the world. Use my authority in all the world, in other words. I'll take care of things in heaven. You take care of things on the earth. That's why he made such a big deal about us doing the same works that he did. And even greater works because he's going to the Father. Now, in Mark chapter 16, did you find that yet? Verse 17, here's Mark's account of the Great Commission. He said, and these signs shall follow them that believe. These are the signs of those that are doing the work of God here on the earth. Notice the first one. In my name they shall cast out devils. First thing Jesus said about us doing the work of occupying till he comes, going into all the world and making disciples of all nations. The first thing he said would be the sign, or the first sign he said would be what we could recognize the church by is authority over the devil. In my name they shall cast out devils. That's exactly the same thing as saying in my name they'll exercise authority over the devil. Now if you didn't have authority over the devil, there's no way you could cast one out. Is there? So without question, one of the things, in fact, the first thing that Jesus said would be the sign of the church, those doing his will here on the earth, those disciples in whom the word is abiding in them would be the exercise of authority. See, I think too many people are trying to look for, the, look for God or Jesus to do something about the devil. When he says over and over and over again, it's up to you to do something about the devil. See, the devil's not up in heaven. The devil was once in heaven. God dealt with him pretty severely there. Jesus said in describing his fall, Satan's fall, he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven when he was cast into the earth. So there's no authority in heaven for Jesus to use or exercise his authority over. There's no power of the devil. There's no presence of the devil. There's nothing for Jesus to exercise authority over in, earth, in heaven, but there sure is on the earth. So the first thing he said is, in my name, thus you cast out devils. If you didn't have authority over the devil, you couldn't deal with him. You couldn't cast him out. You couldn't remove his, or uproot his power. But that's exactly what Jesus said we should do. Now turn with me to James chapter 4. Let's see what James said. James another, is another New Testament writer inspired by the Holy Ghost. Notice in verse 7, James 4, 7, he said, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now if you didn't have authority over the devil, you couldn't resist him. But notice what Jesus said. Jesus said, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One meaning of the word flee is to run from as in terror. 
If you didn't have authority over him, there's no way you could make him run. Too many people are on the run, but the devil's after them. Or at least that's the way they think it is. But it says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. I would submit to you that that means submit yourselves to the word. I would submit to you that means exactly what Jesus said when he said, letting the word abide in you. If you abide in me and my word abides in you. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Notice he didn't say pray to God that God will do something about the devil. Folks, God's already done something about the devil. He's he's already done everything he's going to do about the devil until the time comes to cast him in the lake of fire. According to the book of Revelation, when that takes place, we have already departed from the earth and the devil is no longer a problem for us either. But until that time, anything that is done about the devil, any authority that's exercised over the devil, any work that you and I and the rest of the church world does concerning the devil is up to us to exercise God's authority. You're the one that has authority. Luke's 1 Peter chapter 5. Here's the third witness. We've got Jesus and we've got James. Let's see what Peter said. Let's start in verse 7. He said, casting all your care upon him. Well, let me back up a verse, verse 6. He said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That means to his word. Humble yourselves to the word of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Folks, let me stop here long enough to, to make a couple of comments. The world has an exactly opposite viewpoint of what humility is according to the Bible. See, the church thinks being humble is to take whatever comes along. Not raise a stink. If things aren't the way that the Bible says they should be in my life or in yours, well, you know, we'll just humble ourselves to God but that's a, a cop-out. It's a, a poor means of trying to escape reality. Because humbling yourself unto God means to accept what God said to be true, even if it's not the way you feel or is not the way things look. See, the Bible says that you and I are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Well, more than conquerors aren't defeated. More than conquerors don't suffer defeat. More than conquerors don't allow the devil to run roughshod through their lives. More than conquerors don't take whatever the devil brings against them and says, oh, well. More than conquerors don't do that. The Bible says we're victorious. Victors don't accept defeat. Now, which is true? The way we feel or what God's word says? God's word is true whether we believe it or not. God's word is true whether we make it work in our lives or not. God's word is true because it's God's word. And it's impossible for God to lie. So what so much of the church world is doing that they think is humility 
is really just stupidity. Now, I understand for the most part it's based in ignorance. But most Christians I know have a Bible that they they have access to to read and find out what the truth is. So when it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, that just simply means accept the word of God to be true because the word always works. And the word will exalt you. And every time the Bible talks about humility or being humble, it talks about exaltation too. Now the church world has the idea that we're supposed to go through life beaten down, barely hanging on, and that someday when Jesus takes us to heaven, then we'll be exalted. And the world thinks, church world, thinks that accepting the truth of God's word in the face of contradicting circumstances, they think that's pride. They look at us who believe and confess the truth and say, how could they possibly say something like that? How could they possibly say that they're healed when it doesn't look like they are? How could they possibly say that they have authority over the devil when we know how the devil works in in the world? How could they possibly say that they're more than conquerors when they go through the same problems that we do? They think that we're being proud by confessing the truth of God's word. But if God's word is true, if we're saying what God says, how can that be wrong? See, folks, if speaking the truth of God's word into circumstances that contradict everything that you're saying. If that's a lie, then God's a liar. When we say the same thing God says about us, about ourselves, the only way that can be wrong is if God told a lie. Thank God he never did. The Bible means of humility is to pull down every stronghold, every thought, take every thought captive, that exalts itself against the word of God. Look at every circumstance in our life and call that a lie. A lying vanity, as Jonah said in the belly of the fish. Call that a lying vanity because of the truth of God's word. Now, God's word says, you believe it for yourself, believe it or not. But God's word says, if we'll humble ourselves to the word, if we'll accept the word of God to be true, which is the will of God, the word of God has to be the will of God. If we'll humble ourselves to accepting the truth of God's word and speaking it no matter what it looks like and no matter how we feel. That will exalt us in due time. I wish it said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in 30 minutes. (laughs) That'd be nice. But then we'd get tired of waiting for that 30 minutes, wouldn't we? Well, what's due time? I don't know. Due time might be different things for different situations and different people. I don't know. But there is a due time. There is a due time. So he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Notice when you humble yourself to the word, when you make yourself subject to the word, by believing it, confessing it, and acting on it, God does raise us up. How does he do that? He makes his word come to pass in our lives. He brings about the very things that we've been speaking and believing and accepting to be true. Because remember, we're the ones that decide in our own lives how things are going to be. 
You have authority in your life. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Folks, I personally believe that casting all your care on the Lord in, uh, because he cares for you is there specifically because due time doesn't come instantaneously. If there was no due time to come, if there was no point in time where the word produced results and became a reality in your life, I'm talking about in the physical sense. I'm not talking about by faith. If there was no time delay, there's nothing to cast your cares on the Lord about. We wouldn't have any cares. If we knew that we just had to believe God for five minutes or five days, then we'd steal ourselves, we'd get ready for that, We wouldn't have have anything to be anxious about. But because things don't work instantaneously, because you don't get instant results with the word in most cases, there's plenty of opportunity for anxiety to rise. So he said, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now all of a sudden he starts talking about the devil. Hadn't spoken a word about the devil up to this point. But when he talks about the time between believing and having, Then he mentions the devil in his operation. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The word sober is interesting. uh, Nearly every place, there's one time that's an exception. But nearly every place the word sober is used in the New Testament, it comes from a root word that means not moved by emotion. Not moved by emotion. So he says, be sober and be vigilant. Stay on alert, and don't let your emotions get the best of you. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. Don't let your emotions cause you to worry or have anxiety or fret about anything. Cast those over on the Lord. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, doesn't say that he is one. It says he he is as one. Now, in what way is the Bible talking about him being like a lion? He makes a lot of noise. He makes a lot of noise. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Notice it didn't say picking out people that he will devour. He's on the lookout for who will let him devour them. Now, the reason... He has to act, uh, operate in this manner by seeking whom he may devour. It's because man has authority on the earth. You decide whether he devours you or not. You and only you. God doesn't make that choice. God made provision for every one of his children to not be devoured by the devil. But that's up to you. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom, talking about the devil, here's what to do about him. Whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, he says the devil works against all of us the same way. Now you're going to have to resist him. Here's another case, folks. Here's the third of the four witnesses. Where the Holy Spirit is telling us. What to do about the devil? If you didn't have authority over him, you couldn't resist him. 
But the Bible says resist him steadfast in the faith so that he doesn't devour you. You're going to have to stand in faith between the humbling yourself to God's word and the due time when you're exalted or when you receive your answer, in other words. You're going to have to resist him in the faith. If you didn't have authority over him, there'd be no way for you to do that. It would be impossible for you to resist the devil. See, folks, the devil's not making choices about who gets devoured. We are. He's already decided that he's going to try to devour you. You decide whether or not he's successful. Let's look at the fourth witness. The Bible says in the mouth of three or four witnesses, every word should be established. We've given you three. Now let's look at the fourth. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 22. Paul writes to the church, spirit-filled, born-again believers. He said that they should put off concerning the former manner of life, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Think differently. Think according to what the Word says, not according to what you used to think. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Notice that's a byproduct of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, folks, we always are going to have a flesh to contend with. And isn't it sad that the Bible has to tell the church, Christians, believers, people that love God, to quit lying to each other? See, so many times people have said in times past, the problem with the church is the hypocrites. The problem with the church is those, are, is those people among us who aren't living up to what we profess to believe. Well, folks, we all have a flesh to contend with. We all have one. So the Bible says, put away the things, the parts of the old man, the old manner of life that we used to do because we were influenced of the devil. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be not, I'm sorry, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. He mentions two things. He mentions lying, untruthfulness, and he mentions anger. Now, I want you to notice about anger, he does not say it's a sin to be angry. Jesus was angry when he drove the money changers out of the temple. It's not a sin to be angry. But how you let anger affect you can be sinful. Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, turned their tables over, drove them out with a little whip that he made out of cords. He separated those businessmen from, his, from their money. They went running. I don't think many people have a picture of God in that context. But Jesus was angry about how the money changers had made the temple a business. So he separated them from their money. He had to be serious, folks. He drove these Jewish bankers out of the temple. And they left their money. But he didn't sin. Be angry and sin not. 
Now, he gives you a clue on how not to sin when you are angry. He said, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Anger that festers will lead to sin. Anger that festers will always lead to sin. Now, notice what he says in verse 27. He said, neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. He's saying, don't give anger any place. Don't let anger continue overnight because that will lead you into sin. And just in the same way as you can keep anger from taking you into sin or causing you to sin, you can withstand the devil or stand against the devil and not give him any place in your life. Folks, if you didn't have a greater power than the devil has, if you didn't have authority over the devil and his influence, that would be an impossible verse of Scripture to live up to. But the Bible says, just matter of fact, neither give place to the devil. Don't give the devil any place in you. So here's four witnesses, four New Testament witnesses, Jesus, James, Peter, and Paul, that were inspired by the Holy Ghost to do what they did and say what they said. And all four of these witnesses say that you have authority over the devil. You're the one that has it. You're the one that has it. Now I'm going to close with Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. We'll back up to verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Jesus has given them instructions of what to do, go into all the cities that he would come into afterwards. He sent them out two by two. He said, preach the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Heal the sick. And cause the power of God to deliver people. He doesn't say one word in his instructions that we have record of. He doesn't say one word about authority of the, over the devil. But the 70 return, and they said, this stuff works just like you said that it would. It even works against evil spirits. Now, folks, would Jesus give the 70? We don't even know any of the 70's names. Would Jesus give the 70 more authority on the earth before he went to the cross and defeated death than he would give to his children the church, his family now? If so, we have a right to challenge God's justice. But thank God he didn't. I think we're going to find out that we had more authority than they had. And for most of the church, maybe most of the church, they still did more than we did. So they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He's not talking about the devil fell when the 70 used the name of Jesus. He's talking about way back when, before the creation account in Genesis, when the devil was dealt with, he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Lightning comes on pretty suddenly, doesn't it? That's the example Jesus used for the devil being cast out of heaven. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, the devil's been defeated for a long time. God defeated the devil before the creation account. We know that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. So Jesus brought an even greater authority for the church, for you and me, 
than these people had. He's saying, Satan has been defeated for a long time. There's nothing to be afraid of that guy for. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. The word power is the word authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. That word means ability. And over all the ability of the devil, meaning the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Folks, I want you to understand, that's what he said their authority would do for them. You've got more than that. We have all authority. As Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. I'll take care of things in heaven. You use it here on the earth. That's more than these guys had. Way more. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Do you know anybody in their right mind that would claim that Jesus does not have greater authority than the devil now? That would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? The Bible says you're raised to the same place he is. The Bible says you have the same power that put him there at the right hand of God the Father. The Bible says all things in his name, all things have been put under his feet. He said, as a result of them using their name, them using his name, the 70 using the name of Jesus, which they recognized gave them authority to cast out evil spirits. He said, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, which are symbolic of the devil's ability. And then he went further and said, and over all the power or ability of the devil, I give you authority over all the power, all the ability of the devil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And you've been raised far above that. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. I think we as a church have given the devil too much credit for what his power and ability really is. Especially against us. Especially against us. Now, folks, I've found that the greater boldness you use in telling the devil what he is able to do in your life, the greater results you get. I know the way that works for most people is the devil comes and threatens them, and people get paralyzed, which is exactly where he wants you to be. He wants you to think that you don't have ability or authority to break his bondage over your life. He doesn't want you to think you can be free. Free from sickness and disease, free from sin, free from addictions. He doesn't want you to think you can be free. He whispers in our ear and tells us, it'll always be this way. Not if you humble yourselves to the word of God. Not if you resist him steadfast in the faith. If you do what the Bible says and withstand him, then there will come a moment in time, due time, the word of God will become a reality in your life. The word of God will become a reality in your life. One of the things is that the, the Lord drew my attention to here not, uh, well, it's been earlier this week. You know the story of the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5? Everybody knows that story, right? Everybody that comes here knows that story. 
The Bible says that the woman with the issue of blood came in the press behind and touched Jesus' garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway, when she touched him, straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. The Bible says Jesus, knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? You know the rest of the story. She, fearing and trembling, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. If her faith made her whole, then your faith can make you whole. My faith can make me whole. The one thing that, that you'll never hear anybody say is that faith has been done away with. People say that healing and miracles have been done away with. That was all for the early church, the apostles, when the last one died, because they were such great people. When the last one of those people died, then that was all done away with. But Jesus credited people's faith for bringing them the results, not even his own power. Well, her due time came instantly when she touched his garment. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Faith brings feelings. The word of God acted upon brings feelings that line up with what the Bible says is ours. And I think the reason that the Lord brought my attention to that is because it's easy for us to put things off into the future and not keep our faith active. But active faith brings a moment in time when you feel the change or see the change or experience the change, depending on what you're believing for. If it's not sickness and disease, there may not be any feeling involved. But there was a moment in time, a specific moment, where she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. It says, knowing in herself what was done because she felt in her body. Feelings come after faith is exercised. It took faith first for, to bring feelings. But thank God the feelings came. The feelings will come for you too. The reality of God's word will come to you too. In due time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We declare that we have authority over the devil. Satan, take your hands off our bodies in Jesus' name. Take your hands off our finances in Jesus' name. We are doers of the word. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we know we're not demanding these things of you, but we demand our right. We demand our healing. We demand our abundance. We demand, just as Jesus told us to do, we demand our rights and privileges as a child of God. Father, we know that this glorifies you. We know that when we receive all that we've asked you for, when we walk in all that the word provides for us, we know that that glorifies you. And it causes the world to realize that we are your disciples and that we have the help of God in everything that we do. We thank you, Father, for surrounding us with favor as with a shield. We demand favor in Jesus' name. Bodies, we demand that you line up with the truth of the word. In Jesus' name. Father, we demand spectacular increase. 
for the last day work of the church. Spectacular increase. Even as you said, the silver and gold belongs to you. Lord, we thank you that this pleases you. Father, we declare and we delight in the knowledge that you want us to have everything that the Bible says. That you want us to be provided for. You want us to walk in health. You want our lives to be victorious even more than we want them to be. We thank you for making it so. Satan, we serve notice on you. You have no part nor lot in any area of our lives. For you are a defeated foe. We are not ignorant of your devices. We withstand you. We resist you. And we command you to flee from us in Jesus' name. Oh, Father, we declare with grateful hearts that we are free through the work of Jesus. And who the Son sets free is free in every respect. That's us. It's a privilege to humble ourselves to your word, Lord. We delight in manifesting your victory in the earth. Because we are the body of Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. I want you to say something after me. Say these words. Let your heart agree with it. I am free free. from all the work of the devil. For I have authority over him. And nothing he does will ever bring harm to me in the name of Jesus. Satan, take your hands off our bodies. Take your hands off our finances. Take your hands off of our life. For you are a defeated foe in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 It'd do yourself good to say that to yourself every morning a few times. Look at yourself in the mirror and remind yourself of who you are in him. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.